I'm going to rent a movie, I often call someone up to see if the movie is actually worth watching. But I've learned over the years that there's certain people that I avoid asking their opinions. This is even friends. This is family at times. Because they often give way too many details to the point there's not even a reason to watch the movie any longer. I don't know if you know people like this. You may be one of them. I call these folks movie spoilers. And I don't think that's a theological term either. The movie spoilers are those who start with the dreaded words, there was this one part where. And all the one parts that they tell you equals the whole movie, literally. Oh, there was this one part where the whole thing is not what it seems. Oh, or there was this other part what was so sad that you got to bring tissues because you're going to just start crying. I know I'm just talking to the women on that part. I know men, we don't cry in movies, right? Amen? Oh yeah, and then there's this final part where the villain finally is captured by the hero. And then you think to yourself, great, I've heard the whole movies, plus I know the conclusion of the movie, right? And well, in the Gospel of John this morning, our new series, we see that John wrote this Gospel like a person who already saw the movie. And I have to admit that John reminds me of a movie spoiler, but in a good way. We want to listen to what John says because he tells the ending, the conclusion of who Christ is at the very beginning of our verses. John knows the outcome. He knows what he wants to communicate. John knows who Christ is. John knows what happened to Christ. So John knows what he wants us to understand when he shares Christ with us. Now historians think that John wrote this gospel many years after he walked with Christ. And we got to remember, John walked with Christ for three years. So the question is, how did John remember everything that happened with Christ? How did he write such a detailed account of the life and ministry of Jesus Christ? Well, let's turn our Bibles. Hopefully everyone has their Bibles here. Let's turn our Bibles to John 14, verse 26. John 14, verse 26, to give us some clarity on how John remembered so many details. John 14, 26 says this, But the Helper... The Holy Spirit, whom the Father will send in my name, he will teach you all things and bring to your remembrance all that I've said to you. So let me give us some context here before we explain this verse. But this is Jesus speaking to his disciples. And if you read the beginning of this section, Jesus is telling them when he leaves, when he goes back to the Father, he tells them, you're not going to be left alone Why? Well, let's look at verse 26 again, right? It says, the Father will send the Helper, the Comforter, the Holy Spirit to help you remember everything I have taught you through parables, through teachings. You will, it'll come to remembrance of what you need to remember about what I taught you. And similarly, we know the Holy Spirit guided John as well as he wrote 
the Gospel of John. John is thinking and writing from his perspective, from his personality. But under his perspective, his personality is the Holy Spirit accurately reminding John, guiding John on what he needs to pen about Christ. So let's turn to John 1. In our passages that will be in John 1, specifically will be verses 1 through 4. John 1, verses 1 through 4. As we begin, let's go to our Lord in prayer. Holy Father, we praise you, we thank you. We thank you for your word that gives us truth. We thank you for your Holy Spirit that opens our eyes to your truths and continues to do so until the day that we die. Father, I ask that you help us to be clear in our perspective of Christ and who Christ is. I ask that today we'll have a little more clarity before us as your word is opened up to us, Father. I ask that you lead us and empower us with your spirit to hear what your word says. We thank you for Christ and what he has done for us. In him we pray. Amen. John 1, verses 1 through 4 says this. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. All things were made through Him, and without Him, nothing was made that was made. In Him was life, and the life was the light of men. So we see here that John is so simple, yet so profound. These verses are like a pool that is safe enough for a child to wade in, yet deep enough for an elephant to drown in. What John says in these opening verses are so encouraging, so hopeful, but if we go below the surface, we hit some real deep waters, some deep truths, foundational truths that has been held by the church mind-bending truths, let me say, as we try to, to see Christ in all his glory, his brilliance. So the first question is, who is Jesus? Who is Jesus? Who does Jesus claim to be? Who is this Christ? And I would ask us this morning, where would we go to find out who Christ is? Where do we go to search out the facts about Christ? Do we go to history, history books to find out who Christ is? Do we go to tradition to find out who Christ is? Do we watch the TV documentaries that is always talking about finding the real Christ or discovering Christ as he really was? It's really ironic when you watch those. This is just a side note, but... The, the authority or the expert, which is usually a religious liberal professor who is a devout atheist telling us who Christ is. It really doesn't make sense to me, but that's just where we're at with the culture. But are these really valid places, trustworthy sources to discover who Christ is? Or do we turn to Scripture? Do we turn to God's inerrant, infallible word? 2 Timothy 3, 16 and 17 says this, All scripture is breathed out by God and is profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, for training in righteousness, that the man of God may be complete, equipped for every good work. Paul tells Timothy that scripture equips us for every area of life. There's nothing left out. And it starts with having the right 
perspective, the right view of Christ. So let's look at John 1, verse 1, which says this, In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. Jesus was in the beginning, right? And John says that Jesus was with God, and Jesus was God. So the first point is pretty straightforward. Jesus is God. Point number one says that Jesus is God. Jesus was not just a good prophet, nor was Jesus an angel who came down in the form of a man, nor was Jesus just a good man. No, John 1 says that Jesus is deity. He is God in the flesh. He is one with the Father, yet he has his own identity. We have to come to terms with this and understand this. This is a clear passage that spells out that Jesus is God. And that's why since the fourth century, false teachers have tried to twist this passage to say something other than what it says. We have to remember, think about this. If Satan knows that Christianity is built on Christ, right? And if he can distort Christ, we no longer have Christianity anymore. It's destroyed. But John 1 is not the only place where Jesus is shown to be God. Casey mentioned some of these passages last week, including Thomas with his great proclamation about Jesus by saying, my Lord and my God. A couple other passages I would share with you quickly would be about Jesus being God. It's Titus 2.13. Titus 2.13. And it says this, waiting for our blessed hope, the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ. Or I would turn you to Colossians 2.9 that says this, For in Him, that is Jesus, the whole fullness of deity dwells bodily. We could also go to John 5, Colossians 1, Hebrews 1, and see that Christ is clearly God. J.C. Ryle tries to give us some clarity on Jesus being God by saying this. Let us fully be persuaded that the Father and the Son are two distinct persons in the Trinity, co-equal and co-eternal, and yet they are one in substance and severably united and undivided. Try to let our minds sit and soak in that depth. You know, it's a hard thing for us to understand. He, he tries to explain the mysterious relationship that cannot be fully comprehended or able to be fully understood by our finite minds. But the next question that you may be wondering is, okay, great, Jesus is God. Why is that really that important? Why do we need to know this? Well, number one, it's important because God's word says it's important, right? It's God's word's our authority. And we just talked about the fact that if Jesus is distorted, we no longer have Christianity, right? But let's turn to John 14, verses 8 through 10. John 14, 8 through 10 to get more clarity on why. John 14, 8 through 10 says this. Philip said to him, Lord, show us the Father, and it is enough for us. Jesus said to him, have I been with you so long, and you still do not know me, Philip? Whoever has seen me has seen the Father. How can you say, show us the Father? 
Do you not believe that I am in the Father and the Father is in me? The words that I say to you, I do not speak on my own authority, but the Father who dwells in me does his works. What a sad reality here, right? Philip has been walking with Christ for almost three years, and he tells Jesus, just show us God and we will be happy. Just show us who God is. Show us the Father does not still fully grasp or comprehend or understand who Christ is after three years. And it becomes more sad because we would expect Jesus to be very understanding, right? He's shocked by what Philip says. Let's listen to verse 9 again. Jesus said to him, have I been with you so long and you still do not know me, Philip? Whoever has seen me has seen the Father. How can you say, show us the Father? Which leads to point number two. We can know the truth about God through Jesus. Point number two says we can know the truth about God through Jesus. When we see Jesus, we see the Father. When we see Jesus, we see God. Jesus is God. If we have Christ, we have the Father. If we have Christ, we know God. Amen? The opposite is true as well, right? Without Christ, we don't have the Father. Without Christ, we can't serve God, nor can we please God. The question is, do you know God? Do you know Christ? If you haven't placed your trust in Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior by repenting and believing, you still are under the judgment and wrath of God. That's the basic gospel. I pray that if you haven't, you will. I pray that if you have questions, please talk to somebody. We have many mature, godly men and women that would love to share the gospel with you. But not only just share the gospel, but go through the gospel of John with you. But I'd also encourage you to read the gospel of John and learn about our Lord and Savior for yourself through the lens of Scripture. And I pray that God would open your eyes to his truths. Let's go back to John 1.1. John 1.1. And it says, In the beginning was the Word. There's another place in God's Word that reminds us of John 1.1. I wonder if we know any other place that sounds like John 1.1 in the Old Testament. And I think what I should do is ask our astute worship leader, if there's another passage that reminds us of John 1.1. Luke, are you anywhere in... Oh, you're right there. Genesis 1. Oh, that that easy, huh? Genesis 1-1. Very good. Yes, good. Genesis 1-1. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth, right? That's very parallel to John 1, verses 1 through 3. But Genesis shows God as creator as he spoke the world into existence, right? And John 1, 1 through 3 says this. Let's read it again. In the beginning was the word. The word was with God. And the word was God. He was in the beginning with God. All things were made through him. And without him, nothing was made that was made. And John here uses similar language to what we hear in Genesis. And it reveals that Jesus is not only God, but he is creator as well. Which is, of course, an attribute of God, right? God is the only one that can make something out of nothing. Which reveals that 
Jesus is God, which leads to point number three. Jesus is creator, not created. Jesus is creator, not created. John says everything was made through Christ and without him nothing was made that was made. If Christ was created, he would have had to create himself by this very verse, which is impossible. Because it says everything was made through him and without him nothing was made. So since Christ is co-creator with the Father, this gives us some clarity on some other obscure passages in the Old Testament like Genesis 1.26. Genesis 1.26 that says this. You can just jot that down. Then God said, let us make man in our image after our likeness. Who is the us and the our that is being referred to in Genesis 1.26? Well, the Jews say... And they suggest that possibly God is talking to his angels. That he's talking with them about creating man. But this is problematic because angels aren't creators. Nor, and it's debatable to say that they're made in the image of God. I pray that if the Jews only believed that Jesus was the Messiah, then they could believe in what the New Testament says about Christ, but then it would be cleared up, this whole problem with the us and the our in Genesis 1.26. Jesus created all things in him in the beginning with the Father. That means that Jesus, now this should somewhat blow our minds here, Jesus is creator and savior. So Jesus both creates us and then saves us. Jesus knows us so intimately from the beginning. He died for those he created so that we might live with our Savior and Creator for all eternity. Is that amazing? Amen. So we conclude that Jesus was not created, but he was creator. He wasn't a created creature, but he created creatures. I know these are hard doctrines to us, for us to understand And it does not make sense to our natural mind. And yet, this is what Scripture says. That's what it says. I wonder when Scripture defies what we think to be true, are we willing to trust Scripture over our own thinking, over our own understanding, over our own experiences? Are we willing to agree with Scripture over what we think? I also notice, it's just a side note, but I also noticed how Casey left me with some really tough subjects to try to preach on. I'm looking at some of these things thinking, what in the world am I going to say? And not only that, but then he leaves to North Carolina for a couple of weeks, so he's not even around to hear what's being said. As we sort of wade through these heavy, in-depth doctrines that are found in Scripture, what I'm just trying to say about Casey is he's, he's a smart guy. I mean, that was a smooth move. Well, let's move back, move on to John 1, verse 4. John 1, verse 4. Our final verse this morning. And it says this, In him was life, and the life was the light of men. I wonder if we look at Jesus, I wonder if we're looking at Jesus this morning as life. How is Christ, how is Christ's life in our daily world? Does Christ remind us of life or does he remind us of duty? I get to worship him or I have to worship him. 
I wonder how well we worship God if we look at obeying him as mandatory. I want to love my wife, or I have to love my wife. I want to read the Bible, or man, I just, I got to start reading the Bible. I want to raise my kids to love the Lord, or man, I really got to start raising my kids to love the Lord. Or I want to spend time with Christ, or man, I'm just so busy, I got to start really figuring out a way I'm going to spend time with Christ. When Christ becomes a taskmaster, when Christ becomes a drudgery, or when living for Christ seems like bondage, I can tell you we aren't worshiping Christ any longer. We're worshiping something else altogether. We have turned our life to idols, our attention to ourselves, which means we are focused on this world. We become earthly minded instead of heavenward focused. That's why 1 John 2.15 says, Do not love the world or the things in the world. If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. Is Christ our life? Or are we sort of wrapped up in this world? Sort of running on fumes. Oh yeah, I love Christ, but I'm totally focused on everything in this world. When we see that we are living for this temporal world over Christ, What is our reaction? It often seems it's, I'm going to change. I'm going to change. Our our natural inclination is, I'm going to try harder. I'm going to do it. I'm going to work my way into being a godly person. It's sort of like our New Year's resolutions. I don't know if anybody's ever tried that before. It probably lasts like three days. I'm going to be a new and better me. And then halfway through that week, you're thinking, man, I have already reverted back, right? I'm going to read the Bible more. I'm going to pray more. I'm going to live my life daily for Christ. In essence, think about this. This is what we're saying. I'm going to focus on myself so I can learn to focus more on Christ. I don't know if we understand that, but I am going to work through the flesh in my own strength to live for Christ. Jesus tells us this. You can do nothing without me. If we are working with our own strength, thinking we can do it on our own, we will lack and we'll be destroyed by Satan, the world, and the flesh. We are called to turn to Christ instead of self, depend on Christ instead of ourselves. It's not try harder, but give up, recognize I can do nothing without Christ, and humble ourselves. Turn away from the intense focus on ourselves, thinking we can change everything, and turn our attention, our energies, our thoughts our life to Christ. Amen? This was a struggle also. It's not just us who struggle with this, but we can look back at the the first century church as well as many people thought you trust Christ and have good works and that equals God's approval. Paul combated this group known as the Judaizers who said this, Christ plus following the law equals salvation. So Christ and their own works led to God's approval. Let's listen to what Paul says in Philippians 3, 2 through 9 on this subject. Philippians 3, 2 through 9. And they're going to be on the screens behind us here. So you can follow along. It says this. Paul says, look out for the dogs. Look out for the evildoers. Look out for the mutilators of the flesh. He's just talking about the Judaizers. The one that said you had to be circumcised to fo- and, and follow Christ to be saved. 
For we are the circumcision who worship by the Spirit of God and glory in Christ Jesus and put no confidence in the flesh, though I myself have reason for confidence in the flesh also. If anyone thinks he has confidence in the flesh, if anyone else thinks he has reason for confidence in the flesh, I have more circumcised on the eighth day of the people of Israel, the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of Hebrews, as to the law, a Pharisee, as to zeal, a persecutor of the church, as to righteousness under the law, blameless. But whatever I gain, I had, I count as lost for the sake of Christ. Indeed, I count everything as lost because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord. For his sake, I've suffered the loss of all things and count them as rubbish in order that I might gain Christ and be found in him, not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but that which comes through faith. righteousness from God that depends on faith. Paul says all my accolades, all my great works following the law to a T did not bring about the righteousness from God. It led actually to self-righteousness which leads to all sorts of things like pride, self-centeredness, loving ourselves, high view of self. Paul concludes I had to count all my works of the law as rubbish, as nothing. I had to get rid of all those things that I had my pride in and say they're not worth anything. But when I turned to Christ or when Christ took a hold of him, that's when he became righteous, not because of what he did, but because of what Christ did in him. Do we see that in our own lives? Or are we sort of banking on the things that we're doing? Is it about Christ or is it about us? Paul knew that Christ saved him, freed him. Jesus gave Paul real life. That leads to point number four. Our final point, Jesus gives life. Jesus gives life. Is Jesus life to us this morning? Is Jesus our hope? Is Jesus our passion? Is Jesus our zeal? Are we really loving Jesus this morning? Jesus says, without me, we are lost. We are wretched. We are wicked. We are sinful. Living for our own pleasures in this world. That's who we are left to ourselves. Romans 8, 6 through 8 says this. For to set the mind on the flesh is death. But to set the mind on the spirit is life and peace. For the mind that is set on the flesh is hostile to God. For it does not submit to God's laws. Indeed, it cannot. Those who are in the flesh cannot please God. This is who we were before we lived for Christ. We were controlled by the flesh, living as enemies of Christ, as Satan was our father. It says we were hostile to God, Romans 8, 7. Then we turn to Christ, and instead of living in rebellion to God, we are now able to please God. We are no longer slaves to the flesh, but now we can walk in newness of life through the power of the Holy Spirit. What a blessing. We were enemies of God, now we're children of God. We were facing the wrath of God, going to hell, facing God's judgment. 
but now God approves of us and we will be with him in heaven for all eternity. Christ has graciously given us life and our response should be one of gratitude, of one of amazement, one of joy, continued praise to God, fall on our knees in awe of his grace, consumed with everlasting passion and zeal for what he has done for us. He's given us life. Amen? Does this sound like us this morning? Full of fervent love and thankfulness to God for what he has done and continues to do for us in Jesus Christ? Well, in conclusion, Christ is life and light to all men. How does the light of Christ shine through us this morning? How does Christ shine when anger rises up in us? Or how does Christ shine when we're facing conflict with our spouse? Or how does the light of Christ shine through us in our homes, in our families? How does the light of Christ shine through us when we are by ourselves? How does the light of Christ shine when God is heaping blessings on us? How does the light of Christ shine in us when we're walking in our mundane moments of life? How is Christ shining in you, in me? And I'm not asking abstract questions, but questions that we must all think about and examine our hearts and meditate on to see if we're even in Christ. You may be thinking, I'm not sure how my relationship is with Christ. Or maybe you don't know Christ at all. Maybe you're thinking, man, this Christian thing, Christ, sounds sort of weird. There's the Father God, there's the Son God, and there's the Spirit God. Wow, and they're all one and yet three. Very weird, right? Well, I would love to spend some time with you during the week where we could discuss some of these issues about God's word and look at them from a biblical standpoint. We have a sign-up sheet where you can actually sign up and meet and visit with me through the week and you just go out there on the front desk in the foyer and sign up to meet with me and we'll, we'll sort of dig into these issues and we'll, we'll meet as many weeks as we need. But Christ is the Lord of our lives. And at the family church, we believe that Jesus is life. And without him, we are hopeless. We are doomed. But with him, but with him, we are more than conquerors. We have everlasting hope. We have a future, the word of God says. And we have life in Christ. Let's go to him in prayer. Holy Father, oh how gracious you are to us. Oh how fickle we are. We can just look and think about how our life was going yesterday or this morning to show how fickle and how sinful we are even as believers. We struggle with selfishness daily. We struggle with pride daily. We struggle just to communicate the right things to other people and not get offended when someone says something wrong to us, Father. Oh, how shallow our love is for you and our love for your people. Help us. Empower us with your spirit. Help us to not blame the devil for things that we're struggling with. Help us to recognize our flesh. Like Paul says, is to die, turn from the flesh and turn to the spirit. Help us to be those type of Christians who are walking in holiness for your glory. We thank you for Christ. We thank you for how he is high and lifted up and we can clearly see him in your word. Thank you for your word and thank you for everything you do for us. In Christ's name we pray, amen.